0: In an ideal world, evidence-based medicine and thoughtful clinical research might guide our every treatment decision. Of course, this is not the way it often works. Treating psychotic patients poses extraordinary challenges. When is it logical to combine antipsychotics? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Aaron Gibson. Dr. Gibson is assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy at the University of New Mexico. Welcome to ReachMD, Aaron.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lunt. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you today.
0: What does the research tell us about combining antipsychotics?
1: Unfortunately, very little. The body of data that's available with respect to combining antipsychotics in the treatment of schizophrenia is actually really pretty sparse. There's actually only four randomized double-blind controlled studies, and all four of those were with clozapine and risperidone. And so the fact of the matter is that most clinicians don't have a wealth of data to refer to when we're discussing antipsychotic polypharmacy.
0: But it seems like we do it all the time.
1: We do, and in fact, there's up to 25% of outpatients and up to 50% of inpatients actually are on some sort of, whether it's short-term or long-term, antipsychotic polypharmacy. So even though the data isn't there to support the practice, it is something that is seen
0: quite routinely and pretty frequently. Can it be dangerous to combine antipsychotics? It
1: certainly can. And I think there are three kind of major areas that you really need to focus on when we're combining antipsychotics. And the first would be the metabolic effects of these agents, particularly the atypical antipsychotics. Um, What we've noticed with these newer agents is that we've seen quite a bit of weight gain and glucose dysregulation and hyperlipidemia with these. And we don't know if we combine these agents, if there's an additive effect to that. So we might be giving these patients a double whammy by combining those. A second area would be tardive dyskinesia, which is a movement disorder that can be seen. And we don't know much about this adverse event at all. And the bottom line is we don't know if there's an additive risk. So if we're combining an older agent with a newer agent, are we going to actually increase the risk for tardive dyskinesia than if we were just using one agent? And we don't know the answer to that question. And the last thing would be cardiac effects. Most of the antipsychotics, if not all of them, are going to cause an increase in the QTC prolongation. And one drug in particular is a or the name brangiodon, tends to be the worst of the atypical antipsychotics with this. And so if you have a patient with a history of cardiac problems, or even a patient without that, it might be dangerous to combine these medications simply because we could be uh, increasing the risk for causing arrhythmias because of this QTC prolongation.
0: Or even, I'm thinking, one of the older antipsychotics, um, melaril.
1: Oh, certainly, certainly. And it has a black box warning on, on that for that effect. So even if we dip into the typical agents or the older agents, that is certainly a very big concern as well.
0: So when is it reasonable, considering really the lack of knowledge that we do have in the research about combining antipsychotics, when is it reasonable to consider doing it?
1: I think the most reasonable time to consider doing it is when you really have a treatment-resistant population, and you'll see that term thrown out quite a bit in the literature and in clinical practices as well. But when you have a treatment-resistant population, I think that's when you should start to think about doing something that's outside the box and outside the body of literature that we currently have. What I would recommend is always assessing compliance. I teach a medication education class to the patients on the inpatient units, and most of the time they claim that it's well, I stopped taking my medications and that's why I'm back in the hospital. So I think it's really important for clinicians to assess the fact, is the patient taking the medication or are they not taking it? And if they're not taking it, is that the reason that you're not seeing a response that you should see? Because it doesn't really make a lot of sense to add another medication to a regimen that the patient's not taking anyway. I would also think about it in patients who have failed trials of both typical and atypical antipsychotics. What I would caution with this is that making sure that you give the patient an adequate dose and an adequate duration of the antipsychotic medication before you consider it a failure. I think what happens a lot of times is clinicians aren't seeing an effect within 7 to 10 days the patient and, or the patient's family wants something to be done now, and really that's not enough time to see an effect of the antipsychotic. And so what you'll see is that maybe this is truly not a treatment-resistant patient. We just needed to give the medication more time. So those are some of the criteria that I would look at. I would also look at making sure that the patient has at least had a trial of clozapine and the reason I say that is because we have very good data that shows that clozapine is very effective in the treatment resistant population. And so, if you have a patient who's failed maybe a typical antipsychotic or one or two atypicals, I would really give strong consideration to giving a trial with clozapine because it has shown to be effective in that patient population. Now, if you've gone through that list of criteria, you've made sure that the patient is taking the medication, they've failed adequate trials of other medications they can't tolerate or they fail clozapine, then I would certainly think about looking into the possibility of a combination of antipsychotics.
0: But Aaron, don't you feel like most clinicians are afraid of clozapine? Most of them are.
1: And some of that is probably very warranted and some of it may not be. And I think the reason that they might be afraid of clozapine is because of the very significant monitoring parameter burden, see, and not only on the clinician, but also the patient. Because when you initially start the drug, you have to come in for weekly blood draws. And then there's the fear of agranulocytosis, uh, and if you've ever seen that in a patient, it's something that's not only scary, but it's a reminder of that we are dealing with medications that are very dangerous as well.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD Professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Aaron Gibson. We are discussing the wisdom or maybe lack of wisdom, of combining antipsychotics. Aaron, what logic can we then use to determine whether an antipsychotic combination is reasonable or not?
1: There's a couple of things that you can look at. The first one that I would look at would really be to look at the mechanisms of the antipsychotics. You obviously don't want to duplicate what you're doing with one antipsychotic by adding another antipsychotic that has a very similar mechanism. An example of this would be if you were to give a patient two high-potency typical antipsychotics or older agents, because they have virtually the same mechanism, that's really not going to do you much good. So when you're considering an antipsychotic combination, I would recommend that you, you at least try and mix and match the mechanisms so that you're doing something a little differently. So that would be the first step that I would do, is look at the mechanisms and make sure that you're combining two agents that aren't going to be doing the same thing with respect to mechanisms. The second thing that I would look at would be the adverse event profiles. We know that you can see an increase in metabolic problems with the atypical antipsychotics. And so obviously, clozapine and olanzapine are two of the worst offenders. And so that's going to be a very strong consideration if you're wanting to think about combining those two agents. You have to be really concerned about the potential additive effect For the metabolic problems that these two agents can cause on their own. And if you put them together, it might exacerbate that. So I think that that's the big thing with respect to adverse event profiles is you want to make sure that you're really careful with that and not giving two agents that are really going to compound each other and make things worse for whatever adverse events that you're looking at.
0: So on the flip side of that, could you give us some examples of a theoretically beneficial antipsychotic combination?
1: One combination that I think would make sense from a lot of different standpoints would be combining quetiapine and aripiprazole. And when you look at the mechanism, they have very different D2 binding profiles. And so I think that that makes that a logical step in considering that quetiapine has a very fast on, fast off binding profile with respect to the D2 receptors. And aripiprazole differs from that completely. So I think from a mechanism standpoint, that would be a reasonable combination. And when you move to the adverse event or adverse profile effect of these two agents, there's really not a lot of overlap there. You're going to have a very low risk of increasing extrapyramidal symptoms with these two agents. You're also going to have a low risk of metabolic concerns above and beyond what you would expect with each individual agent. And there's a low risk of additive sedation as well. The drawback, I would say, would be cost because these agents are extremely expensive. But from a mechanism standpoint and from an adverse effect standpoint, uh, this combination certainly makes a lot of sense to me.
0: You mentioned quetiapine or Seroquel as the brand name. Don't you see that being added a lot to other antipsychotics, mainly for its use as, as a sedative, as sleeper, if you will?
1: Exactly. We see a lot of that practiced not only in the inpatient units, but also as an outpatient as well. Because Seroquel is very sedating, what you'll notice is patients will have Seroquel combined with another antipsychotic, but the dose of the Seroquel would be very low, probably anywhere from 50 to 200 milligrams, and it's usually given in the evening. And so it is used for its sedative properties as well. And, and when you think about that, that tends to be a very expensive medication or sleeping medication, if you will. And so that's one of the more common combinations that we see, and and it's really generally used for sleep.
0: So again, that may not be entirely rational. It may
1: not be entirely (laughs) rational, exactly. And I'm not saying that that's not a combination that is not effective, but it is certainly something that you'd want to look at from a cost standpoint and maybe trying other agents for sleep first before you jump to using Seroquel in combination with another antipsychotic.
0: Let's talk more about the cost. Has anybody looked at the pharmacoeconomics of combining antipsychotics?
1: To my knowledge, there isn't any data available with respect to combining these antipsychotics. And based on the prohibitive cost of these agents, I don't know that that data will ever become available simply because it is going to be something very difficult to capture. I would think that it's going to be very difficult to show a benefit with combining these agents simply because they are so expensive.
0: I have seen data for Medi-Cal, which is the California State Medicaid program, and the dollar spent from the state of California on antipsychotics dwarfs pretty much any other medication class. It's really amazing the billions with a B dollars that are spent every year.
1: That is exactly the case here in New Mexico as well. I serve on the P&T Committee for the Medicaid distributor here in New Mexico, and the same is very true here in New Mexico as well. So it's quite mind-boggling to see how much is spent on these agents on a yearly basis by our state Medicaid systems.
0: At least in the literature, it seems like there's somewhat of a backlash now reevaluating the older conventional antipsychotics like haloperidol, saying, gosh, you know, are these meds really any different in terms of efficacy than the newer, much more expensive medicines? Do you have any opinion about that?
1: Certainly. And I, I think that that is something that the Katie trial really brought into the forefront as clinicians and really had clinicians revisit their thinking on using these agents. And are we really getting enough bang for our buck out of the newer atypical antipsychotic agents? And I think that's a very valid question. I would be cautious in interpreting that, though. And we do know that these typical agents tend to have a higher risk of tardive dyskinesia. And I think that that's one thing that really didn't Shine out with respect to the Katie trial and other literature because it's a long term side effect. And so I think it's something very valid to consider, maybe going back to a lot of the older typical agents, but it is something that I would do with caution.
0: Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Just today, as a matter of fact, I had a student in the office and she didn't even know how to examine someone for tardive dyskinesia. I mean, it's really kind of fallen off the map.
1: Exactly, exactly. So I think it's maybe a forgotten side effect. And so everybody's up in arms with the cost of these agents and saying, well, if the older agents are just as effective, why aren't we using those? And I think we need to be cautious with that. I do think that there is a place for that discussion, but I think we need to quantify that and, and make sure that we're being smart about that discussion.
0: Absolutely. Good words. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Certainly.
1: Thank you for your time, and I
0: enjoyed it. We've been speaking with Dr. Aaron Gibson about combining antipsychotics. I'm Dr. Leslie Lund. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and downloadable podcast, visit our website at www.reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.